in association with the SICE Europe Journal of Global Affairs, this is the Analyst Interview Project. I'm Matthew Schleich. Today we're sitting down with SICE Professor Sanisha Vukovic to talk about peace negotiations in Ukraine. Dr. Vukovic has written and taught extensively on international bargaining and the peace process. The structure of his analysis is an invaluable asset to anyone trying to make sense of some of the political barriers that continue to prevent peace. This interview was recorded on March 2nd, 2022, and given the fluidity of the conflict, events may have changed before the publishing of this podcast. I'll see you after the show. Hi, Dr. Vukovic. Thanks for joining us. Uh, before we get into it, could you give us an introduction on your work and your analysis? Thank you for the invitation, Matthew. Uh, I am the Senior Lecturer of Conflict Management and Global Policy here at SAIS. I teach courses in negotiation, mediation, conflict analysis, and conflict management. I primarily focus on the peacemaking side of anything related to conflict dynamics. So uh, anything that, uh, generally speaking, we like to lump into uh, diplomatic efforts to find pe- peaceful solutions to escalating conflicts or frozen conflicts for that matter. But nonetheless, I'm also very much uh, interested and, and, and involved in any forms of analysis that relate to understanding um, emergence, escalation, and termination of conflicts overall. So today I want to talk to you about the evolving situation in Ukraine. A few days ago, Russian and Ukrainian authorities met in Belarus to discuss a possible end to the war. A peace deal didn't emerge from the meeting. They agreed to talk again soon, and then the Russian invasion intensified. To the layperson, this meeting can seem confusing, but from an analytical perspective, is there something deeper going on here? Let me put my my professor hat for a moment before I go into a a policy analyst uh, angle. you have to understand that for all negoci- that negotiations are a political choice, that negotiations uh, can be done for the sake of talking, but not for the sake of resolving anything. Uh, for negotiations to be successful, there needs to be a set of um, uh, preconditions that are met in order to create um, uh, uh, sufficient incentives for the parties to compromise, to um, back away from their maximalist uh, claims and unilateral strategies. So if you look at the uh, situation in Ukraine right now, <clears throat> we would call it that this situation is not ripe, neither for negotiations nor for resolution. Negotiations in these types of situations are used for devious reasons. That's another uh, empirical term. It's used by the conflicting parties to regroup, rearm, catch a breath, claim international legitimacy and domestic support to demonstrate resolve, but also uh, reason that they are not doing that. That the conflict is not an end in itself, but a means to an end. Uh, none of that indicates that the parties are willing to compromise and. You have to understand that compromising carries with itself political risks. So as long as the parties perceive these risks to be higher than the gains they can get out of any uh, potential solution that can be negotiated, that they can uh, rely on and expect from the other side, negotiations cannot lead to any transformative end. When we talk about conflict negotiation, a term that gets thrown around a lot is positional bargaining. 
What is positional bargaining and are we seeing it in the talk so far in Ukraine? Yeah, so this is exactly what is happening right now in Ukraine. So positional bargaining means that the parties focus on what uh, each side says and claims. So this is what is uttered uh, in, 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 in public fora. This is what is being used to mobilize domestic support. This is what is used to articulate specific expectations from the international community. So all of these positions uh, point out the solutions that the parties expect to cater to their own strategic interests. Positions are never stated in a compromising tone. Positions are never stated with, uh, with, a, with, a deg- with a degree or even with a sense of empathy towards the positions of the other side. And from an, from an analytical perspective, these positions are intentionally formulated in a way to be refused by the other side, to kind of pivot the blame to the opponent to say that they are unwilling to compromise based on your positions. Positions uh, are not what we need to focus on when we look at potential solutions to the conflict. We need to look at the actual underlining interests of the parties. So instead of exploring uh, what is being said publicly, we need to understand what informs those public statements, which are basic Uh, or existential needs and interests of the parties that drive them uh, throughout this process. Do you think that uh, embarrassment, macho identity, or the notion of backing down will play a significant role for Putin or Zelensky in the conflict resolution process? There are some cultural traits that we need to be mindful of. Um, Nonetheless, you have to also understand that these individuals do not operate in a vacuum. They also operate within their own contextual environments, within their own cultural environments. And to many people's surprise, uh, both Russia and Ukraine are less masculine than one would expect as communities, as societies. Now, Putin may be the poster boy for, um, you know, masculine behavior, at least the way he's being perceived from the West. But we can already see that the backlash he's facing domestically and even within his inner circle, you know, the the, the bits and pieces that we get of information that are leaking out uh, indicate that this type of posturing, this type of attitude is not really uh, most... Uh, um, sensitive and most appropriate w- within a given context. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking this with a, with a, with a level of, 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 of uh, skepticism that the individual level has so much to bear when it comes to uh, explaining, um, uh, explaining broad strategic behavior of these actors as systems. Now, are individuals important for our analysis? Absolutely, especially for an entity such as the Russian government or the Rus- the, the, the state, uh, because the centralization of power and authority, the individualization of power and authority in the hands of Putin is 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 mind blowing. So, certainly, what is it, what is on his mind will be uh, causing a lot of ripple effects uh, politically and, and geopolitically as we speak. Now, you've also mentioned in your question the reputational incentive that they actually carry with them. And reputation is a very important aspect in all negotiations. You have to understand negotiations as a, as a, as a, uh, uh, as a 
process that is very much interrelated with conflict itself. So it, it, negotiations do not happen uh, uh, outside of the context in which the conflict is, is, is developing. Negotiations are a continuation of the conflict only through peaceful means. You can understand it as such. So if that is the case. Whenever we think about negotiations and about those preconditions that I was talking about just, just now, we have, we have to also understand that the parties need to perceive negotiations as a political way out of their predicament. So they need to perceive that predicament in the first place. They need to perceive that what they have been trying to achieve through their unilateral means and moves is unattainable and it's getting worse and worse. They're what, what, what theory would call they're reaching a precipice. In other words, they're getting to the point in, of no return where all of the options that they are now taking for granted will no longer be because you, you will be crossing the Rubicon very soon. So you have to act rationally and anticipate those types of scenarios. So as you anticipate that type of predicament, and as you see that your escalatory moves are not working, you may start thinking about negotiations, as I said, as a viable way out of this, of this situation. What does that mean? It means actually that the negotiations are uh, perceived as a political risk of engaging with your enemy, someone that you're trying to defeat, someone that you're trying to eliminate, someone that you're trying to discredit. Now you need to depend on them. Now you need to cooperate with them. Now you need to compromise with them. So it takes a lot of political courage and capital to sell that type of option for uh, your constituencies and for your partners and for your inner circle of advisors, that you are not going to be seen weak, that you are not going to be seen as if you're defeating the whole purpose of going into the conflict, that you are not, um, uh, basically that you are not deserting the cause. It takes a lot of time to articulate that type of stand. So you have to understand that the reputational incentive as such may, may act as an impediment to negotiations, but also as an opportunity to change the reputation that you have already damaged throughout the course of the conflict. Could you tell me about the role of the third party mediator? Um, are there signs that we might need one in Ukraine early on and who could possibly play that role? I just had a class on mediation on Monday that where we discussed potential mediators for this for this uh, for this conflict for this war, and it's you know the the pool of potential mediators is endless, but the actual mediators that or third parties that could at this point step in and make anything meaningful in transforming the course of action is very small and if if at all existent, um, there are some voices around the world that are self-promoting themselves as potential mediators. But, and I will get to that list in, in, in just a moment, but before I explain how to, you know, who they are, it's very important to understand how you choose a mediator in the first place. First of all, the mediator needs to be trusted sufficiently by both parties that they will deliver an outcome that caters to their interests, that they will not disfavor them in the process, that they will treat them fairly, that they will treat them uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a mindful way that will respect their priorities. So that's point number one, that it needs to be mutually agreed by the parties. Second, that the mediator has what it takes to deliver on that promise, the skill and the will. 
the resources and the interests to deliver on solutions that potentially may be very costly for the mediator that might require assistance in the implementation phase that might require some monitoring some uh, supervision uh, that oversight comes at a comes with the price that they might need to collaborate with other international actors to see this agreement through and at the end of the day they also since we were talking about the, the reputational incentive there's a reputational incentive for mediators as well if if the agreement becomes just a scrap of paper it significantly impacts the reputation and credibility of the mediator on the global level so who is willing to take that risk who is willing to step in into someone else's mess and tries to do something that the parties themselves don't want to do so that you can understand why this why the selection process as such becomes very difficult to um, to to see through um another thing that oftentimes is 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 misunderstood about mediation is what is the what is the purpose of sell is there a significance of choosing unequivocally neutral mediators right so do they really need to be neutral and when we say neutral what do we mean by that usually we mean impartial to the parties but no one is really impartial to the parties you know you cannot you know no conflict occurs in an in a in a in a, in a, in a vacuum everyone has prior exposure to the parties prior relationships and as such the expectations are uh, developed around that type of exposure and experience at the same time each mediator comes in with an understanding of its own about what this conflict is all about uh, what kind of norms need to prevail what kind of solutions can be legitimized or not so it's hard to find a mediator and, and actually the parties don't want that type of mediator that is completely indifferent to the terms that are being negotiated so you need uh, a constructive level of bias involved especially in asymmetric conflicts like this one you need a, a mediator that is able to leverage the more resourceful side to agree to the terms that otherwise they would not agree to to help them redefine their priorities and to express to them the concern that they are actually as a powerful side reaching that point of no return it's a very difficult role for the mediators at this point and now with all that in mind i can tell you that there is a list being formed which i find very uh, insightful and on top of that list for now is israel which has proven to have good relationships with both sides uh, but it also is concerned that if it is to be uh, if it is to take on the role of a mediator it is expected of israel as such to ripen this conflict for resolution so it, it needs to exercise some form of leveraging both towards russia and to a degree towards ukraine which may jeopardize their bilateral relations with both of those sides because you know if promises are made and promises are not delivered it will uh, significantly uh, impact the quality of ties that they have had up until that point and if you understand why israel has good relationships with with russia for instance considering the political situation in the middle east you can understand why it is half hesitant how much would it be able to be involved in leveraging Russia towards an agreement that Russia itself would never bilaterally negotiate with Ukraine? 
And so for the last question, I want to give listeners something concrete to take home with them. What events or indicators should we be looking out for in relation to the negotiating process in the next few days, next few weeks, and next few months? So first of all, you one needs to refrain from thinking that for negotiations to be successful, violence needs to stop. That's point number one. And that's usually a misunderstanding about the purpose of negotiations. Violence is an off-the-table tactical tool that parties will use to improve their bargaining leverage. So we need to expect that the violence will continue while the negotiations may, you know, fruitful negotiations may be on the way. Second, one needs to understand that conditions on the ground need to be permissive for the negotiations to start. In other words, that the parties, especially the more powerful side, starts perceiving that their strategies, that their solutions, that their approach to the issue itself has been self-destructive, that they are actually experiencing more damage than gain, that it is unattainable, it is unfeasible and unsustainable to continue on this course of action. And this means that potentially they may need to exhaust all of the options before they think of negotiations as a uh, a tool of last resort. So we might actually see a highly escalatory pattern before they get exhausted by it. And it becomes a reputational damage. It becomes uh, a, a political risk domestically and a completely self-destructive approach internationally. So I'm, I'm specifically talking about Russia here. Um, another thing that we need to keep in mind is that these conflict resolution processes do not happen in a normative vacuum as well. So there needs to be a clear understanding which norms will prevail, which type of principles and values are going to be upheld by the future uh, solution. In other words, there are certain types of normative preconditions under which negotiations will be conducted. And that may be the respect of two basic principles and norms from that are embedded in the UN Charter, that, which oftentimes get, 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 get misunderstood and conflated as, as if it was a single norm, but these are two relatable norms. It is state sovereignty and territorial integrity. So sovereignty means that the uh, uh, incumbent regime has the monopoly of power within the territory that they control. And that would be the relationship to the territorial integrity. In other words, that the borders remain as they are. That brings the question about Crimea, for instance, and about previously occupied uh, territories in Donbass and Lugansk by the uh, uh, pro-Russian militias uh, that have been in a protracted conflict for more than eight years with, uh, with, with the government of Ukraine. Um, so what norms? And the third one, and this is something that may also be indicative of a ripening of the situation, is the way uh, 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 political elites are articulating their goals and priorities. So right now we're hearing from Putin that his priority is to denazify Ukraine, which, which sounds as absurd as it gets. If if that no longer is a priority and that there is something actually more meaningful in his statements, potentially we may find an opening for negotiations. But maybe 
it is difficult to find reason in his statements as such. So another option is that someone else steps in or takes over the responsibility of negotiating to kind of face save Putin and they negotiate on a lower level or with, 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 a, with a different political capital on behalf of Russia, be it Shoigu as a minister of defense or be it uh, uh, Lavrov as minister of foreign affairs, someone that is going to articulate a different set of different set of priorities that are you know going to be justified as as more urgent and they will leave it at that forgetting what putin was 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 expressing up until that point because they're unattainable so there are there is a number of indicators that we need to take into account uh, before we can think of negotiations as a viable political option Negotiations cannot be fruitful if the parties still believe they can achieve what they desire through unilateral moves. Especially this is the case for Russia. There needs to be a recalibration of their priorities. So the more they lose on the ground, the quicker they may think about using negotiations as a way out. Great, Dr. Vukovic, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for today. The Analyst Interview Project is an ongoing series of interviews with subject matter experts of contained topics within conflict management and strategy. Are you an analyst? Do you know an analyst? Do you want to talk specifics? Drop me a line at Matthew Schleich on Twitter. It's S-C-H-L-E-I-C-H. If you want to donate or get involved in fundraising through SICE Europe for Ukrainian victims of war, also feel free to reach out. I can point you in the right direction. There's an amazing group of SICE women leading the charity effort. They would absolutely appreciate your support. The SICE Europe Journal of Global Affairs is a graduate student-run organization at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. The journal publishes peer-reviewed articles for policymakers, academics, and professionals, and they've kindly lent me some space for this project. For more information, you can visit the journal online at SICEJournal.eu. That's S-A-I-S-J-O-U-R-N-A-L dot E-U.